Good evening. Tell you what, I I know John just prayed, but let me pray for us one more time here. Father, I thank you for the book of Job. God, I thank you for everything that is in your word. And Lord, I pray that as we begin this series, Father, that every heart would be enabled by your grace to listen. I pray, Lord, that in the next few moments, every ear would be open, every mouth would be closed. Father, that we would be able to hear the truth that you are speaking to us in this tremendous and difficult book. And Father, I pray for our church as we listen. I pray for our town. Father, we pray for our world. And we are asking that your son, Jesus Christ, would make himself known in the gospel in every place and to every person. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I begin to study the book of Job uh, for the sake of preaching it almost two years ago um, while I was still in California. I never preached it there. For one thing, it never seemed like the right time. Um, but also, and mainly because, to be perfectly honest, I couldn't figure it out. And about two weeks ago, still trying to figure it out, I had an epiphany. That's the whole point. Job is not meant to be figured out. There are no safe, tidy, exhaustive answers for this book because there are no safe, tidy, exhaustive answers for our suffering. It's in the journey through Job that its purpose is realized because the book doesn't give any answers. Job cries out for an answer, which is what it's meant to leave us doing. So, much of this study will not give answers. <clears throat> Rather, I'd like to force us to ask hard questions for which there may not be easy answers or any answers. And it's in that that I think we find the true purpose of Job. A more clarifying word is needed to understand the book of Job. And that word is not a systematic theology definition. That clarifying word is the person and work of Jesus Christ for us in the gospel. Now, while that is an answer, that's not an answer when you're suffering. But again, I believe that's the whole point. The answer that will bring total peace with what we read in this book and what we all experience in our lives won't be realized or identified until we're with Him. Until, like Job says in chapter 19, verse 25, our Redeemer stands on the earth, and in our flesh we see our God. And I want, you to, I want you to know something really personal before we get started on this amazing book. I'm, I'm going through Job with you because I don't have any desire to be anywhere else but here with you in Moundsville. Job is not to be entered into lightly, and I wouldn't preach it if I didn't think this was my home. Now, over these last, it's, it's been about three months now, I've, I've watched many of you suffer. Out in the open, some of you are behind the scenes. For many of you, some things, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, some things you hear and find out as a pastor that you can't share with everyone. And so I only say that to say, not something about myself, but just so that you know that suffering is always happening in a church. People are always suffering. 
And I don't want you to lose heart. I want to believe that God brought in my mind First Peter and Job together to happen at the same time, basically for your sakes, for our sakes. I've never studied a book that addresses the deepest questions of our lives with as much raw honesty as the book of Job does. It's, it's, a, it's a profound revelation of God's love and care for us that this book is even in the Bible for us. Suffering is universal. It's not unique to anybody. That makes Job relevant for everybody. I hope this makes sense, but I want us in this study to get uncomfortable. I want us to wrestle with Job. And not as a means of getting you to do something, but as a means of knowing the soul-sustaining peace that comes from not having all the answers. I want you to have that. The line that Job draws from us to Jesus is not just theological. It's profoundly personal and real and practical. My prayer for you and I in this series is that we move together from the darkness of doubt and confusion and frustration and fear to the light of the peace that Jesus gives to us here in the middle of the night, a peace that only Jesus can give to us. So let's head down this path and see where it takes us. We'll begin in chapter 1 tonight and make our way through most of chapter 2 to set the stage. We're probably going to be looking at Job in, in larger pieces like that. Um, but when we need to slow down, we'll slow down. I'm not in any rush, uh, and I don't plan on it getting boring. But as we come into this book, a righteous man named Job was afflicted by God through the scheming of Satan, who charged that Job only served God because of his prosperity and would curse God if everything was taken from him. So the main point of our sermon tonight is really the main theme that I'm trying to bring out of the book of Job, that suffering and death force us to reckon with questions that can only be answered by Jesus through the gospel. So take your seats, get some popcorn, that's fine. Settle in as the curtain rises on this amazing story. Let's begin in Job 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 servants. I'm sorry, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. We don't know when Job was written. We don't know who wrote it. But it was most likely written before any of the other books in the Bible. It's the oldest book in the Bible as far as when it was written is concerned. Job was a Gentile patriarch, much like Abraham was. We know this for several reasons. His wealth, that is what makes him the greatest of all the people of the East, is measured in terms of the number of cattle he possessed and the number of servants he employed. So Job was the head of a very large family for whom he served as a priest, much like Abraham did for his family. He offered sacrifices, but there's no mention in the book 
of the name or the nation of Israel. So there was no centralized sacrificial system. There was no tabernacle. There was no temple. If there had been, see, how do we know that? If there had been, and Job was offering sacrifices, he would not have been righteous. He would have been considered horribly sinful. These are the same practices as the patriarchs in Genesis who acted as priests by offering sacrifices and praying for their households. But he lived longer than the other patriarchs did. He lived 140 years after his restoration. He would have been around 200 years old when he died. Outside of the Bible, the name of Job is only, uh, only appears in writings between 2000 and 1400 B.C. So this is very early. He's a non-Israelite from the land of Uz, which can't be definitively located, but clearly it wasn't within the borders of Israel. It's anywhere from, you know, we think anywhere from uh, Aram in northern Syria, south all the way to Edom, which is modern-day Jordan. This is a man who most likely lived before God's covenant with Abraham, possibly between Abraham and Moses, but extremely early on. Either way, way before there were any written scriptures, which is important. But the goal of the first five verses is to begin to prove beyond the shadow of any doubt whatsoever that this man Job was righteous. He was blameless and upright, one who feared God without any scripture or priesthood to tell him to do that. He just did that and turned away from evil. He's presented to us as the epitome of a godly human being, as godly as one can be. He was even a good father. He would consecrate his sons individually to God on their birthdays. He offered sacrifices for them just in case they had sinned against God in their hearts. He offered, uh, and he did this, the text says, all the time. So his reverence and concern for the glory of God is unquestionable. Again, Job is the epitome of a man who honors and glorifies God. He is the epitome of a man who deserves the good life. Job is part of the wisdom literature. That's who he's grouped with in Scripture, the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Job is the kind of man a book like Proverbs is talking about. Right? His life is a picture of the one who will be blessed and prosperous and healthy. He's wise. He's good. He's righteous. He makes all the right decisions. He's responsible. The first five verses of Job give the book all of its weight. Job had done nothing nothing to cause any suffering in his life. Let's read on, beginning in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Evil is restless. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. 
only against him, do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The scene in heaven here is almost a direct parallel to the scene in Job's house. Here are God and his sons, if you will. We don't know if that means angels. It it, it probably does, but the text doesn't make that extremely clear. It's possible that these sons of God represent all of God's sons, considering what's in Job. But the thing is that we want to note, there's an intruder here. There's somebody here that doesn't belong. The accuser. That's what the word Satan means. This is the accuser. His charge is not just against Job. If you look, it's against all the sons of God. The accuser is challenging the right of every son of God, any son of God, to stand before the, before the throne. And in case you and I would want to question the author's description of just how righteous Job really was, now it's God himself that attests to just how righteous Job actually was. God says of him, there's no one like him on the earth. He is blameless and upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. But the accuser disagrees. This is the heart of the plot in just the sense of the story that's contained in Job. Satan's accusation that people only worship God because of what God does for them. Which implies that he's not valuable in and of himself. He's only valuable because he gives things. Job is an extremely complex book. It's It is by far one of the most difficult to interpret. And not just because of its structure. Its structure is very odd. The closest thing to it is maybe Isaiah or Revelation. You have, um, you know, the structure makes it hard to interpret because you have a prose opening, a narrative opening. You have a prose or a narrative epilogue or or ending. And then in between you have all this dialogue which is in the form of poetry. So it's, 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 hard to struct, it's hard to interpret not just because of its structure, but because of the questions it raises for us and, of course, for the people in the book. The, the dialogue, the conclusion are actually addressing the validity of Satan's accusation here in chapter 1. But what can't be and isn't argued by anyone in the book, not even the devil, is whether God is sovereign. He absolutely is which almost, almost makes Satan look like a prop here that God is setting up to show something about himself and Job will be the means. After chapter 2, the accuser never shows up again in the whole book, at least not by name. He's there, but not by name. What holds the prologue and the epilogue together then is this question of God's worth. God takes Satan up on his challenge in verse 12. Let's see, God is saying. He lets Satan loose on his servant, Job. But there's boundaries. He can't physically touch him or kill him. And Satan has to obey. But beloved, do not forget. And do not hide from the fact, as we continue through Job, that everything you're about to see was God's idea. Look at verse 13. Now there was a day, see that there's another day, like verse 6. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. So it's the oldest brother's birthday, probably. And there came a messenger to Job and said, 
The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Think about that for a minute. The fire of God fell from heaven. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, so there's a line forming, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. All six kids, gone. If I'm remembering, six is the right number, but they're all gone. So Satan is extremely powerful extremely evil and cruel he's a thief and a murderer Job is sitting there and just boom 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 it all hits the sun comes crashing down on Jonah in one day in the space of a few minutes he loses everything worst of all his precious children imagine sitting there as he was and this is what you hear in these successive concussive booms. Just the, 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 the one telling him something, he's not even done talking while the other one shows up to pile on with this horrible news. Now in the midst of his suffering is the truest demonstration of just how righteous this man really was. Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head this, is, this is, was the custom of that culture. This is what you would do to show grief. And fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan's argument is laid waste by this righteous man in one sentence. Job doesn't understand anything, but his only response, the only thing he could think of to do in this, the darkest moment of his life, is to worship his God. Job's immediate response is to show that he had never worshipped God just because God did things for him or gave things to him. It's the first thing we see out of Job. When all the things he had, even his children, were taken away, he expresses immediate recognition of and hope in his God's infinite worth. That's what worship in the darkness is. The majesty of God is brought to the forefront here in such a powerful way that all mouths are stopped in this moment. We're all just meant to sit and look in awe. But what I really want us to look at is the end of verse 21. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What would we say to Job if we were standing there Especially since as the reader, remember this, we have information Job does not have about how all this came to happen. How would we comfort him? 
When we heard him say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Wouldn't you want to say in that moment, no, 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 Job, no, no, no. Yes, the Lord gave, but the devil took away. The devil took away. God didn't have anything to do with that part of it. As though what will eventually lead to the emptiness and the questioning that finally comes out of Jonah is his inaccurate assessment of just who really is to blame for all he had lost. Beloved, verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. There is no refuge in the dark night of the soul in a God who is not completely sovereign. Job was right. That's what what the text is telling us. Job was right. This is the way the universe works. Even when Satan is the direct instrument of suffering and pain, he is still not the ultimate cause. God reveals himself to be the giver and the taker in our world. Yes, Satan was the one that carried out all this suffering and death, but Job's correct assessment of it is that it couldn't have possibly happened if God wasn't behind it somehow. And, and we, we can't get him off the hook without allowing talk. This is God doing. The, 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 the Lord gave and the Lord took. Not the Lord gave and then the Lord stood back and allowed this to happen. The Lord gave to Job. The Lord took from Job. And when Job acknowledges that, the the text, the Holy Spirit inspired the writer to say, make sure you say he was right. Job was not sinning when he said that the Lord had taken away. He wasn't incorrectly placing the responsibility at God's feet. And God wants us to see this. There is no systematic theology category that gives an easy answer here. There isn't a camp that gives an easy, nice, tight, oh, okay, answer to what we read in Job 1, 20 through 22. I don't know how we reconcile this with the fact that God does not sin and God is not evil. That's what I mean about Job. If, if, if you let the text stand, I don't know what we do with it sometimes. So maybe, just maybe, Systematic categories are insufficient to define God. Maybe there's a place where our, where our ability to dissect what we see and place it in these nice little theological boxes just hits a ceiling through which it cannot pass. Job's belief, which flies right in the face of the accuser, is that if he receives from God, God is worthy to be praised. And if God takes from him, God is worthy to be praised. Job has no framework to understand his loss other than to look to the God he still worships. So look at verse 1 of chapter 2 now. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Now just... Why? Why? God, why? The man has had enough. 
Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He is still that. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. I love to watch God play with the devil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. So since Satan was foiled the first time, now he thinks it seems like he just didn't push far enough. He still uh, holds to his original theory. They only worship you because you do things for them. So maybe I was wrong that it's the possessions or the children. Maybe the breaking point is their own life. Take away their health. Make them suffer pain personally. Then they'll curse you to your face. That's Satan's goal. To get man to curse God to his face. So the sovereign God lets the accuser loose again. And this time, he ravages Job's health. It's so bad that Job uses a piece of broken pottery. So I, I think the implication is, I don't know what was available then, but he can't afford medical care anymore. So he has pieces of broken pottery to scrape his skin because it burns and itches so bad while he sits in the literal ashes of the garbage dump is where he is, where the outcasts and the destitute would stay. These are excruciating boils, the sores that form around infected hair follicles. Imagine that pain all across your body, your entire body, which is why he got so desperate that he used pottery. The full extent of Job's suffering is outlined throughout the book. Fever, chills, darkening and shriveled skin, red eyes swollen from weeping, diarrhea, sleeplessness, delirium, bad breath, emaciation, excruciating pain everywhere. We cannot fathom his misery and pain and loss. And then his wife, who before we get on her back has also lost everything, finds him at the dump in verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. She comes to him and says, What's wrong with you? This is the only person in the text so far I can relate to. Is it more important to you to look righteous than to be honest about our situation, Job? Just curse him. He abandoned us. He took everything from us. Curse him and die and be done with it. The one person on earth he could look to for comfort and she's against him. Again, I'm not throwing her under the bus. I'm just stating what we see here. And what does Job say? Look at the first part of verse 10. 
But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil or disaster? Now Job is so delusional that he's blaspheming, isn't he? I mean, what would we say to Job? Again, how would we comfort him? If, if we heard that come out of his mouth, no, 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 Job, yes, God was the source of all you had, but he's not the source of all this evil. You can't receive evil from God, Job. Disaster doesn't come from God, Job. He just allows all this to happen because, you know, he... um uh, he works in mysterious ways. But look at the last part of verse 10. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job wasn't blaspheming to word it the way that he worded it. He wasn't sinning in what he said. He was right again. And the text is unapologetic. It's as if in this opening of this story, God wants us to hear Job say that so that He can tell us through the Holy Spirit that Job is correct. Beloved, we are going, as we walk through the book of Job, we're going to be tempted to think like His friends do. That's why we're hearing Job say these things. Because our natural response, if we really listen, if we really look down and read, is to say, no, 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 no. That, that couldn't be. That, that's just, you're seeing it wrong. It doesn't work that way. And, and why, why do we say that? We know it doesn't work that way because we have these categories of things God can do and things God can't do. And Job just blows them out of the water. That's the thing. Maybe God can't do evil just because He's God. Maybe it's that because he's God, nothing he does is evil. I mean, do you want to take him to court? Do we want to sit across the, the, the aisle from God in court and hold him up to some standard of what we think he's allowed to do and not do? I don't want us to think through these things because I think God is evil. Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> Nor do I think he is the source of evil. My goodness. No, no, no. That's not the point here. I want us to wrestle with things that we do not have easy answers for. Because when we get right down to it, I, I, I want us to move beyond these quaint little surface level ideas about God so that we can truly know Him. I think that's what Job is doing. The book of Job is like a big bottle of bleach right in the middle of the Bible that'll just burn out goofy, misplaced ideas we have about God. That we create so that we don't have to deal with the hard truths. So, beloved, God isn't hiding who He is from us. Why do we try to fix our confusion by stuffing Him in the closet? Know this God. The one who truly is. The whole point here is that somehow Job isn't cursing God. He isn't even asking why just yet, and that's amazing. Depending on your sense of humor, how many of you remember when Saturday Night Live used to be funny? 
<laughs> there used to be this bit they would do called Deep Thoughts by the humorous Jack Handy. Do any of you remember Deep Thoughts? Okay, somebody does out there. I just see an arm, but thank. Hey, Ron, nice arm. All right. So <laughs> there were these little philosophical reflections that were set to peaceful music, and they'd have these, you know, idyllic backgrounds, but they weren't peaceful things at all. You know, you, you some of the, like this one, and you hear his voice come over as you listen to the music. Some people are like slinkies; they don't really have a purpose, but they still bring a smile to your face when you push them down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> this one stands out tonight. Listen to this. So the music is playing. It's the nice, beautiful background. If a kid asks where rain comes from, I think a cute thing to tell him is God is crying. And if he asks why God is crying, another cute thing to tell him is probably because of something you did. So, <laughs> did Carmine laugh at <laughs> <laughs> we like the idea of karma. We really do. It makes everything nice and tight, doesn't it? You do good, you'll be blessed. You do bad, you'll be cursed. If only the world was that simple. Job is God's loving smack to the back of our heads for thinking that way. Suffering is a part of everybody's life. No one is immune. Sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it makes sense. You can understand it. You can draw straight lines. I was reading about this. He said, if you blow all your money on booze, you'll likely reap poverty, loneliness, and cirrhosis of the liver. Right? But to just conclude that suffering people must have somehow heaped up trouble for themselves on the cosmic registry... And that God is constantly just doling out the misery in direct proportion to mistakes is to be more than mistaken about suffering and people, beloved. It's cruel. It's cruel. There is simple cause and effect. I readily understand that. We know that. We see it. That's not the suffering the book of Job addresses. That's not the only suffering there is. That's not the suffering that's hard to understand all the time. We all suffer. Pain is unavoidable. And again, I want to stress that there are things in our lives that we know we're paying for mistakes we've made in the past. Whether it's regret or guilt or, or a, something in our bodies that's physical, I totally understand that. But what about when there isn't anything to point to? It's not a question of if with suffering, it's a question of when. There's physical suffering, there's emotional suffering, sometimes they're one and the same. Like I said, sometimes we can point to why. The answer is obvious. Other times we can't, you know. Everything is going well. Life is coasting along normally, but then that cough doesn't go away and you find out you have cancer. Or you find out your lungs don't work anymore. The loved one, you come home and he's taken his own life the grown man that tries to put up the front that everything is good but he's dying inside from depression right? the teenage girl whose anxiety is threatening to choke away her future one buckles under the weight of habitual sin but can't tell anyone because rather than being 
dealt with in a spirit of gentleness, they'll be ostracized for what they're struggling with. The pastor's wife suffers in silence because she can't go to anyone or it threatens her husband's job. The child is abused by the priest, but it gets covered up. The senior citizen just sits alone in the nursing home day after day after day. The child gets shot. The wife gets ran over by a car. The bridge collapses and it crushes the car with the family in it that's headed to Disney World. My friend, my friend prayed. He lives in Charlotte and prayed and prayed and hoped and hoped for years, over a decade, that God would heal his wife of cancer. And the more he prayed, the worse she got, and then she died. My friend may never recover from that. Our friends, my wife and I's friends, both had horrible marriages, horrible spouses who left them. They met each other. They got married, finally have a son. And he has Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. He has to go to the hospital every three months to be scanned for tumors because he's horribly susceptible to cancer. Every fever the little boy has is a literal emergency. I, I had the opportunity a couple, I hope I don't put anybody on the spot here, a couple weeks ago to go to the, the Steelers game with Jim and his son Logan and Donnie and, and he... told me the story of his daughter I'm, I'm thankful that she's well but just trying to work through that just trying to get your head around it. two days ago my My grandpa started to get better, and about six thirty, seven o'clock, sometime Friday morning, he just died. He just died, and it goes on and on and on and on for everybody. Whatever we experience, whatever variety of pain you're most familiar with, the truth remains: each of us suffers in some way often every single day. And, and can we, beloved, why? Why? Now you can say, we shouldn't ask God why. Okay, then don't. But don't act like it doesn't linger. Don't act like the question isn't there. You know, well, all things work together for good. <laughs> the Bible is not Prozac and God is not a therapist. We know that. We, we, we know that all things work together for good. It doesn't make you smile at a funeral. Not always. Have you ever poured out your pain to somebody and they responded like that? Have you ever responded? Have we ever responded to somebody that way? We mean well. We do. We want to help. But beloved, we might be drawing from the wrong well. I love this quote. I love it. The required cheerfulness that characterizes many of our churches 
produces a suffocating environment of pat religious answers to the painful, complex questions that riddle the lives of hurting people. That culture of mandatory happiness actually promotes dishonesty and causes more suffering. We don't mean to, beloved, but we can breed hypocrisy with our refusal to face the truth of our own confusion and doubt and fear. Information, even biblical information, is not always going to heal a broken heart. We have so many books on how suffering can transform our lives for the better, how we can just adjust to a new normal. We can leverage pain to become better people, right? Results, 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 results. It's all we ever hear. Can I just get real with you for a minute? I'm a pastor. I pastor a church. I've staked my life on everything in this book being true. And if my children all die on the same day, I'm probably going to die of a heart attack in my own tears and vomit. If I get the call or the police officer at the door telling me that my wife has been killed, I will break inside and I probably won't ever heal. The world is too broken for quick fixes and continuous attempts to somehow make sweet lemonade out of rotten lemons. How and why are honest questions, make no mistake, but beloved, they can be a prison. They leave us cold and confused, just like Job was when his friends started trying to fix him. God has not called us to suck it up. He's not called us to grin and bear it. Nor has He called us to understand it or figure it out. Did you know that? Do you know that when you suffer? God's approval of you is not based on whether or not you figure out how to rise above it. There is no rising above most of it. Job was not abandoned by God because he couldn't deal with his pain. None of Job's feelings or expressions in this book are incompatible with faith. We'll find that out at the end. Faith involves our deepest passions engaged by the reality of God. Why do we think, beloved, that we can alleviate pain by comprehending it? Why do we so often think that to alleviate our suffering, we somehow have to get God off the hook for it? God didn't have anything to do with that. I don't want to live in a universe where God didn't have anything to do with it. Where information is lacking, speculation will abound. That's a nice way to sum up 3 through 41 of 3 through 39 really of Jonah. And speculation is empty. It's empty. Underneath all the belief that if we can figure out why or how or turn it off or something good is the fact that we will all fall flat in the face of real suffering. When we find out our power or our resolve or our wisdom is a lot more limited than we thought. Beloved, the better question than why or how in suffering is who in suffering. That's the only question that God has seen fit to answer. And we have to wrestle with it. That's the path to the truth, the person and the work of Jesus Christ.
Robert Capon writes, Answers to prayer for help are a problem only when you look on God as a divine vending machine programmed to dispense cokes, camels, lost keys, and freedom from gallbladder trouble to anyone who has the right coins. With a personal analogy, things are better. It isn't that God has a principle about not starting cars or starting them. What God has a principle about is you. He loves you. His chief concern is to be himself for you. You see that. We may not ever fully understand here why God allows the suffering that devastates our lives. We may not ever find the right answer to how we'll dig ourselves out of our pain. There may not always be a silver lining. What I want to argue in this book is that we don't need answers in our suffering nearly as much as we need the presence of God. And beloved, we have it. We have it. Look at the book of Job here tonight. Look at 121. And 2.10 again. They introduce the heart of what Job and we need to wrestle with. That's their function here. The whole point of these texts in the narrative is to show that God does not try to get God off the hook in suffering. At best, he owns the role of cause and source. And at worst, he doesn't reject the idea that he had something to do with it. What ended up sustaining Job's soul was not God providing him with the answers. God never did that for him. In his lifetime, Job never found out about what went on in heaven in chapters 1 and 2. Did you know that? Never found out. Here's what sustained Job's soul. God revealed himself to Job. That's it. Job didn't need a why. Job needed a who. And God provided it. And He has provided a who for you and I, beloved. And His name is Jesus Christ. It's through a person, not a list of explanations, that God has reconciled all our suffering to Himself. An innocent person who suffered unjustly for the sins of others. That's how God reconciled our suffering to Himself. The first thing God wants us to see before we head into all the dialogue and try to work through it is that the accuser is wrong about God. God is not just worthy of worship because He does good things for us. God stands completely worthy of worship in the giving and in the taking. All of it. For Job, it is because he is both giver and taker that he is worthy of worship. So God is telling us, lay it all at my feet. Lay all these questions and the beating of your fists at my feet. I can handle it. Beloved, God can handle it. It's all right. His chest is big. Beat on it. And his arms are wide and his grip is strong. This God wants to be known so he doesn't hide anything about himself. 
the accuser accuses us tonight, you can be sure. Will we agree with him if God turns out not to be what we thought? When we find ourselves sitting in the ashes, will God be enough? God lets all of that play out right in front of us, beloved. He's inviting us in Job to come and reason with him in the midst of our own darkness. This book goes deeper into the reality of human experience than any other book I know of, and even in the Bible. And we need this book, beloved. If we're going to be shaken out of our comfort zones, and I, that phrase, when I say that I don't mean like, you know, I don't want being shaken out of our comfort zones to have something to do with like more contemporary music. That's fine. It's, content is what matters. I'm not, that's not what I'm addressing. What I'm saying is when we talk about getting out of our comfort zones, what we normally are doing is, is I, the preacher is kind of trying to find a way to get you to do something new that you don't like. So I'll preach, you know, you got to get out of your comfort zone. If I want to do a building fund, I'll preach Nehemiah. They built the wall. We should add on to the church. <laughs> Same thing, I guess. It's just... <laughs> I want us to know our God. And the reality of suffering in this world makes that hard to do with any sense of real insurance if we run from who he is. In his book on Job, Mike Mason told the story of a man he met, I love this, who had moved his entire family halfway around the world because he said he'd had a vision from God. So yet Mason asked him to tell him the story and he answered, well, there are three versions to that story of why I moved my family halfway around the world. There was the version he told to Christians. There was the version he told to non-Christians. And finally, there was the truth. And the book of Job looks at things from that third perspective. That third point of view. Not that other scriptures don't tell us the truth. They most certainly do. But Job tells the truth in a way that makes it impossible to pervert it into some pious intellectual trinket the first two chapters of Job introduce a problem that desperately needs a resolution. Job's suffering in light of Job's innocence. And the problem is all the more pronounced because we know what the characters in the story don't know. We know that Job's suffering has its origin in Job's God. One way or the other, right? You and I have the Bible to wrestle through that. Job had nothing. Nothing. So on what basis and with what resources did Job manage to go through his experiences without abandoning his faith? He didn't need the Bible to not abandon his faith. We, we, we have to reckon with that. Could it be that the very fact that Job didn't have a Bible and that God never told him what happened between him and the accuser be a message to us that maybe God is not to be known most definitely through knowledge about Him, but in the revelation of Himself to us now in Christ? That would start to make Jesus' statement in John 5 about how they search the Scriptures to find life make sense because life is found in Him. We won't know him apart from the Bible. That's not what we mean. What we want to see here is that a man lost everything, had no Bible, had no sermons, had no preacher, had horrible friends, and didn't abandon his faith. From Job's darkness comes our light. And the God who is there for us is more worthy of worship and faith than we can ever possibly fathom. He doesn't reject us when we can't figure it out, beloved. He's merciful. 
as we close tonight, if you take anything from this probably difficult first sermon, mercy is God's permission to us to be human, to struggle a little bit. Job was forced to reckon with things for which he had no answer. The sun went down on Job. His life, his theology, everything is in shambles. Suffering and death force us to reckon with questions that can only be answered through Jesus in the gospel. And again, it's not that the gospel provides tight, comfortable answers in suffering. It doesn't. What the gospel provides is Jesus, and He is enough. I heard this said. I love it. I want you to hear it before we close. God's office is at the end of your rope. So, Lord, we cry out to you tonight. Come and be with us. Let's sing a last song together here after I pray. I'll be down front if any of you need to talk or pray during the invitation and after, and then we'll close. Father, I thank you for your word tonight. Lord, I, I want to understand why you put things in this book that are hard to understand. Lord, I pray that we not turn from you tonight, that we, we take the questions or the confusion or the struggle that we're experiencing now and we go to you. Lord, you hear us when we pray. You invite us to come close. You've given us complete access through Christ. So I pray that's what we would take advantage of tonight. Lord, for any in this room that might not know you, Lord, I pray that they would begin to understand by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you are real, that you have addressed the deepest questions of our lives, and you have given an answer. And Father, your answer means ours won't work. So Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts tonight, and as we go through this study, I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.